Would you like to put that on? It's on. You just need to put that somewhere around about here. Be good. If not, then uh, Drew will change it. Just the other way around. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for Trish. We thank you for the word that you've put on her heart. We um, pray for her that she will feel free to bring your word. Lord, and we would have hearts ready to receive it. Lord, we thank you that you speak through Trish and others in this position to minister to us, to transform our hearts. So we want to be attentive to what you have to say. So Lord, we just commit to you and us in this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So why if this looks like a lot of pages, it's a large font. <laughs> For those who know me, if I'm up and down like this, it's just I'm trying to read what I've actually typed. Okay, so my theme today, in my starting point, is Romans 12, 13, which I think is going to come up on screen. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So, if I were to give a name, I'm not greatly given to giving talks names, but if I were, it would be seek to show hospitality. Because, you know, I was thinking about the gifts a lot. And it's great, because we talk a lot about all kinds of gifts. We talk about worship, and we talk about praise, <clears throat> and we talk about um, healing and all kinds of stuff, and prophecy. And marvellous, all four of these things. But sometimes we kind of don't talk so much about some other things like um, hospitality, which we know is so essential, or administration, um, which is really, really crucial because without people who exercise the gift of administration, for example, um, there's an awful lot that wouldn't get done. There are very practical realities, aren't there, to the life of faith. So I thought I would talk about hospitality today. So when we think of hospitality, we might have all kinds of things in our minds. We might conjure up scenes of lovely meals with family and friends. We might think about a particularly nice hotel we stayed in or a restaurant we went to and a big occasion or a lively get-together we were at where there was lots of food and drink and fun and dancing. And there's a whole industry, there is a whole industry out there in the world, as well we know, of which we often take advantage of, it, um, which offers Hospitality, the hospitality industry employs a lot of people and it's essential to the life of the nation. But of course, when we speak of um, biblical Christian hospitality, we would expect to see something different. There will be things that are similar, the same, but there should be a different dimension. Now, the subject of hospitality is absolutely huge, huge in scripture. So I obviously can't cover it all in one talk. So I'm just going to draw out certain aspects to make certain points. So there's a lot I'm not going to say. And I am going to rather jump through in a, very quickly hospitality in the Old Testament because there's just one particular thing I want to say about that. So it's not that I'm ignoring the rest of it. It's just that, you know, obviously one can only cover so much. Um, if you took everything that happens around food and drink out of the Bible, I think you'd have a very short Bible. So there you go, just saying it there. But it's interesting, you see, this quotation, because this verse 
because the word hospitality there is a very particular word in Greek, which is philonexia. And it's a compound of two words in Greek. Philos, which I think we're quite familiar with, which means a lover of something. And then maybe a word we're familiar with in a different context, which is the word xenos, which is basically a stranger or a foreigner. So, if you show philonexia, you are showing a love of strangers, or a love of foreigners, or a love of those who are outside your community. And it's, it's very, very specific, this word. It's a readiness to show generosity, hospitality, friendliness, and warmth to those whom you don't consider family and friends. Yet. Yet. That's the big thing, isn't it? Yet. So it's very easy to look at this quote, because the trouble with translating it in English is, we've got to read it in English, because that's our language, but um, it, you could look at it and think it's actually part A and B of the same command. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, i.e. to each other. Well, we are meant to show hospitality to each other, that's fine. That's part of contributing the needs of the saints. But it's not, it's, a, it's, um, it's two things. It's contribute to the needs of the saints, make them welcome, show them hospitality, and show hospitality to strangers. Show hospitality to those outside of your community. So, as I say, <clears throat> In the Old Testament, the biblical lessons of hospitality, as we know, begin in Genesis, <clears throat> Garden of Eden. That's in some ways a picture of God's generous hospitality. You know, here he has these two created beings in this proliferation of abundance. And we know that didn't go very well in the end, but it gets better if you read to the end, right to Revelation, we win in the end, as they used to say. Um, so the stories of Abraham and others illustrate the way a guest should be treated. Uh, when three strangers approach Abraham's tent, he runs out to greet them and he prepares a lavish meal for them. Now, he doesn't do that because he's looking for anything in particular. He does it because that's what you're supposed to do. Um, he does later learn that they were God's messengers sent to reveal that his formerly barren wife would bear a son. And for those who may not be familiar with that, that story is in Genesis chapter 18. But he did it because hosts, hosts had a sacred obligation in the, in the Jewish life to provide food and drink, water to wash the feet, and a place of rest. And they, um, the guest also had an obligation to accept what was offered. So there was this mutual sort of unwritten contract, if you like, written into hospitality. And the refusal of, on either part was actually considered to be a serious breach of honour. And the Old Testament itself can be considered a story of God's hospitality towards the people that he'd chosen to make a nation. Because when God delivers the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt, he reminds them that they are pilgrims and strangers in the land that he puts them in, but that belongs to him. They're not to hold on to it in a possessive way. They're meant to enjoy God's favor, but it's the Lord's to give them. Um, and they're told of his hospitality and they're commanded to show the same hospitality to others. So I have a quote from Leviticus 19. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. 
The stranger who sojourns with you shall be to you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And when somebody says, I am the Lord your God, it's like, hey, listen up. You know, this is, this is something you take very seriously. This is something I'm commanding you to do. It's not, it's not an option. It's, it's what I require of you as my people. So for the people of the Bible, hospitality wasn't just good manners, but it was a necessity. Without this mutual contract of hospitality, you wouldn't survive in those harsh wilderness regions. You wouldn't be able to travel safely anywhere. You know, you basically needed each other. Um, hospitality was often openly rewarded. For example, Rahab was given protection when Jericho fell because she extended hospitality to Joshua's spies. Sometimes it was punished. Nabal died. Um, just dropped dead after, got ill and dropped dead after refusing to offer hospitality to David's men. It's in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel. Um, the Shunammite woman offered extraordinary hospitality to Elisha. She even built him a special little room on top of a house and put a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp and said he can come and stay and pray there whenever he wants, you know. And um, she was very blessed through that. She was blessed with a son. And then when her son fell ill and died, the child was raised. So by the end of the Old Testament, when we get to Malachi, hospitality towards a stranger is extended to include in very specific ways widows, orphans, and the poor. And um, there are warnings in the closing book of the Old Testament that if you fail to care for widows and the fatherless and those who are deprived and those strangers in your land, that you will be judged severely by God. So the whole picture of that is really to say that God had established um, something around hospitality that he required his people to follow People knew about it. It was a pretty solid framework by the time we get to the people of the New Testament era. And they knew they were expected to keep to it. And of course, this is the world that um, Jesus and his disciples were familiar with, and they knew what was required. So we go into the hospitality in the New Testament. So Jesus himself modelled perfect hospitality. But in surprising ways for some people because he ate with Pharisees and tax collectors and sinners. Good grief. That didn't seem in some people's mind to be part of that covenant, mm -hmm. that bargain, that deal, if you like, whatever you want to call it. But that's what Jesus did. He, he's, he, he went beyond, he went beyond that old, old Testament framework. Took it to new levels. He showed compassion for the physical necessities of people as well. You know, he, Jesus wasn't some airy-fairy person just talking in the abstract all the time, was he? He was someone who really dealt with the necessities of life. He fed thousands of people. Why? Because he, had, he did want to show the glory of his Father. Yeah, he multiplied them. There's a lot of things we could go into in that. But one thing I want to point out is that he, it was based upon compassion, based upon the Lord's compassion. Since during those days, another large crowd gathered. This is the feeding of the 4,000. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. You know, he understood what people's lives were about. John Wesley, you know, John Wesley used to say, um, the reason why 
people who've got stuff, people who are rich, people who are wealthy, don't understand what the poor go through is because they never go near them. And he was right, wasn't he? He was right. They never, there was a gulf. You know, this half didn't know how the other half lived, as the popular saying has. Jesus entered into whatever experience people were having of disadvantage, poverty, pain. So he was completely in touch with people's lives and their necessities. And he commanded that we mirror that compassion if we claim to be his followers. We all know the great commandments in Matthew. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And he says that when we do this for one another, we are basically doing it as though we were doing it to him himself. Um, and that, that is the huge extension. That is the huge extension of this Old Testament understanding of the framework of hospitality. Because yes, he talks about welcoming the stranger and feeding people who are hungry and thirsty. But he also talks about extending it. You know, he, he wants to kind of break down um, the sort of kind of rigidity that people have got into around this. He also told parables about um, extending hospitality to others. I, mean, the, I won't go into it today, but I'm sure most of us are familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan. And we know how important it is that Jesus was using somebody who was not part of the Jewish community in order to show the importance of hospitality and how it wasn't just a preserve of one group of people. You know, it was something that cut across cultural and social boundaries. Because Jesus fundamentally taught that hospitality should not reflect the values of this world, but it should be a proclamation of the values of the kingdom of God. It should not look to praise or validation from society at large or seek personal honour. Because, you see, that was quite often the case. You know, in his day, we often see examples of it. If a rich man had money, he showed off. He showed off, he threw a big banquet and he invited friends and family and people he thought were important. If you were the beggar outside the door, it was like, can you just hang on a minute because I'm just showcasing my stuff here. But Jesus says, no, that's all that we look for. He's giving an example of loving service and self-giving. He says in Luke 14, then Jesus said to his host, he's saying this to his host, so he's saying this as a guest in this house, probably where a bit of that's going on. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours. If, if you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteousness, the righteous. So your reward will come eventually. Be patient. It'll come eventually. But don't look for honour in this life. It's not where our focus is to be. Now sometimes, I love this bit, Jesus actually turned hospitality right on its head because he wants to demonstrate something else about God's love and forgiveness. So I'm just going to look at the story of Zacchaeus, which is in Luke 19. It's going to be up on the screen, but I just find it easier to read from here, mostly. Take the glasses off for that. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree 
to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your home today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So you see, this is really, really important for a number of reasons. Because Jesus has, on, he's on his way to Jerusalem actually. This is not long before he has to go to his passion and death. And he's headed, he's very fixed on going to Jerusalem. And he's going to pass through Jericho. Now, <coughs> the people are hoping he's going to stay there. They want to show hospitality. But they've got their own reasons for wanting to show hospitality. And Jesus being Jesus knows what they are. They want to do this big honor stuff. Where there's this big rabbi everyone's talking about. It's really important. Who's going to put him up? Who's going to get the honor of putting him up? Who's going to have the stories told for ages in the village afterwards? So-and-so put that Jesus up, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, blue plaque time coming up. <laughs> but Jesus is not having any of that. He's going to pass through. Because, you see, it was the tradition, and it still is actually, in Middle Eastern communities, that when a very important figure arrives into a community, they don't decide where they're going to sleep and where they're going to eat. That's actually supposed to be, the custom is it's supposed to be the community that decide that. So they get together, I'm sure there was a bit of jostling, and they decide, okay, he can stay with you. Okay, you can put him up. Okay, you can take the lodging. Okay, you can be invited. There's all this going on. They probably got this worked out. They knew he was coming. They probably have people coming on. Yeah, travelers coming in. Yeah, guess what? Not far behind, there's only a few days, there's that Jesus coming. Great, great, we'll work it all out. We've got to work it all out. Stay there, eat there, blah, blah, etc. And he just wanders through. And in the meantime, Zacchaeus has also heard. But he's an outcast. He's the one nobody wants. Like he's the one that, you better not walk down a dark alley in that village because who knows what's going to happen to him. A very rich man. And he's got rich by basically turning over the people with the taxes. He's a thief. And he's, um, he's unclean. So he's outside of the community. He's at the heart of the community because he has such a huge effect on it. But he's also outside of it basically. So <clears throat> he runs off. Now this is very important. He runs and he hides up a tree. It's almost comical, isn't it, really? But um, he hides in a sycamore tree. Why is that important? Because sycamore trees were not allowed to grow in the village. They were only allowed to be outside a certain distance. So he thinks, if I run and hide in, and they've got very low branches and he's short, so he's not going to climb too far. So he thinks, if I hide in that tree, um, by the time Jesus has dealt with the crowd in, in Jericho and come through, I might be able to run down and catch him. And there'll be nobody about. Um, and he's actually putting himself at risk of public humiliation. Because even now, in rich Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern societies, rich people don't run. It's considered to be a public humiliation. You don't run, and you certainly don't climb trees. You get other people to do that kind of stuff for you. So he's actually, in his desperation to see Jesus, he, he, he breaks all the rules as well. 
Now that says something about him, doesn't it? The desire of his heart at that moment. And Jesus meets it. Jesus meets the desire of his heart by reversing it because he's at once a guest, but he's also another level a host because he says to Zacchaeus, I can see you up the tree and I'm coming to your house. So he's coming as a guest, but he's also taking control of the situation in a way that a host would. So he's turning things on his head. People had followed him out. Zacchaeus didn't get away with being unseen because they'd all come. They'd all come for him, Jesus. And, uh, you know, it must be highly embarrassing for him at one level because he was trying to hide. But he, he throws that off because he's just so thrilled. He's so thrilled he's been invited. Or, you know, or Jesus invited himself. He's, you know, gatecrashed his home in the most loving and beautiful way. And you see, this is, the crowd start grumbling. He's going into the house of a sinner. It's not just because he's going into the house of a sinner and he's going to make himself unclean. And let's face it, this is not long before Passover. What is this big rabbi doing making himself unclean, going in and defiling himself with that man? It's also because, frankly, they were probably a bit jealous and disappointed. But Jesus, and this is very important, he knows how the crime feel. He knows how they feel about Zacchaeus. And he takes how they feel about Zacchaeus onto himself. The opprobrium, the dislike, the hatred of the crowd, the negativity of the crowd. By doing something which is so against what the crowd would have expected and wanted, he actually takes a lot of that unto himself. And remember, this is shortly before he goes to the cross. Let's join the dots here. And Zacchaeus responds. We often don't know how people respond. It's always recorded, is it, how people respond to Jesus? But we know how Zacchaeus responds. He says, I'm going to make restoration. And he exaggerates, because that's a really good Middle Eastern thing to do. He makes restoration. He says, I'm going to give back people this fourfold and this, that, and the other. It's a load of nonsense. He can't do that. He can't afford it. If you actually work it out, you know, I won't go into all the sums. Probably, I'm not very good at sums anyway. I have to check this out myself. But it's a massive amount. It's like, it's like me saying to, to, to Janet, well, I'm going to make restoration today. I'll give you three billion next week. Just let me check my bank account. It's not going to happen, is it? But if he didn't exaggerate, he knows people wouldn't take him seriously. He's always got to exaggerate, so people would go, oh yeah, he does really mean it, because that's how it works. And Jesus says something that's crucial. He says, today salvation has come to this house, because he's also a son of Abraham, and I have come to seek and save the lost. So this is what's at the heart of hospitality. This is what's at the heart of it. In the story of Martha and Mary, Jesus also teaches that we can get caught up in the practicalities and it can be an end in itself if we're not careful. In Luke 10, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Good start. By the way, I love Martha. This is not a bad rap on Martha. Very fond of Martha. But this is just a moment where she just needed a little bit of, you know, a help understanding things. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted, note the word distracted, by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Ever felt like that? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will be not and it will not be taken away from her. Is the Lord saying that we shouldn't ever worry about practicalities and logistics? Well, no, of course not. Meals just don't appear on the table by themselves, do they? 
you know, somebody's got to take the responsibility for it. Somebody has to do washing up. Somebody has to prep the veg, whatever. You know, knead the dough, get the oil lamps lit, get the old washing of the feet bowls ready. It's all got to happen. Somebody's got to do it. It's brilliant. But once that happens, this was not um, Martha, you know, trying to get the logistics with a small team for a soup kitchen out reaching to a lot of people. It's, you know, she, she, this is not that what this is about. This is about the considering the needs of those who are within the community. This is about fellowshipping with Jesus. And so it's like, don't let the preparations and the niceness of the food and whether the tablecloth should be that way or that way, don't let that get in the way of what it's actually supposed to be supporting, which is an encounter with the Lord. We just had a reminder too of Jesus' great moment of hospitality when he has that last Passover meal with his friends. As John was saying, it brings that transformational power. I no longer call you servants, but friends. And the depth of revelation that Jesus gives to his friends at that moment is so beautiful you could weep. Absolutely stunningly beautiful. Go back and read it. It's, it's, it's wonderful. I no longer call you, and, and I wash your feet to show you that I came to serve and so must you serve one another. I reveal to you who the Father is to me and who I am to the Father, who the Holy Spirit is. There's this tremendous revelation because when we offer our hospitality and we do our meals, if it's Christian hospitality, it should reveal something of Jesus. It should reveal Jesus. Otherwise, it's just doing something nice for someone. Nothing wrong with that. But Christian hospitality reveals Jesus. In John 21, we find Jesus on the shore, his post-resurrection appearances, and he's waiting. He's waiting for the disciples who've come in from fishing, and he makes them breakfast. Because there is this reality. Again, it's a revelation of Jesus. My resurrected body is real. I'm not a ghost. I'm real. It's, again, a, a meal that reveals Jesus. We come to the other New Testament writers. So a few things I'll just go through a little quickly, I think. 1 Peter 4, show hospitality to, another, to one another without grumbling. That's a good one, isn't it? It's quite easy to get into that. Martha was getting into a bit of that, wasn't she? Why don't you tell her to help me? <laughs> you know? It's not easy sometimes, is it? It's hard work, catering and all that. But it's about, it's attitudinal, isn't it? I was saying before, it's attitudinal. Find the joy in it. If you don't find the joy in it, you're not going to be a very good host. Be constant, don't neglect it. Hebrews 13, 1 to 2. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And that's going back to that story of Abraham, who didn't know he was entertaining angels and got blessed. But he did it because he was following the Lord's command to show hospitality. Now, not looking at anyone in particular, but elders and deacons are in particular are told to be hospitable. If you look in 1 Timothy and also in Titus, chapter 1, you'll find that it says that elders and deacons, amongst the various criteria that Paul sets out, are meant to be hospitable. This is extremely important because you've got to think of the context of the early church. Because they didn't have churches, people met in homes. So if people weren't prepared, leadership weren't prepared to be hospitable, then you couldn't necessarily have your meetings in the same way. He also says that for widows to be put on the list 
for support. There's also a set of criteria. You've got to be at least 60 years old, faithful to your husband, well-respected, brought up your children well. And also, it says, has she been kind to strangers? You see? Yeah. If so, put her on the list. Now, there's only, there's only a couple of times believers are exhorted not to show hospitality. And that's in uh, second letter of John, chapter 10. Um, and that was in the case of false teachers. You don't invite them in because they can draw you away from the faith. So don't have them in your home. It's quite clear about that. That's for the welfare of the flock. And also, 2 Thessalonians 3. Those who received hospitality who didn't work to support themselves and thought that they could idle around and let everyone else do it while they sat there, you know, strutting their stuff or just not bothering much. Them's as work don't eat, as they used to say in Yorkshire, probably still do. So that's the only time. And there are several observable ways in which hospitality, you can read it all through Acts and the letters of the, you know, the epistles of the New Testament. There's lots of very obvious ways in which hospitality contribute to the not only the birth, but also the growth of the church. Because early missionaries and church planters like Paul and Peter and all the others, uh, they were welcomed into people's homes. People's homes were places of ministry. They provided hubs for missionaries and evangelists to be able to reach out to new communities. Um, there was practical provision to strangers as well as those who were traveling through. Um, the early church met in people's homes, as we know, um, and it was also extended to outsiders, so there was prayer, worship, discipleship, provision of needs, this was all going on. And um, this is the kind of uh, setting of love and openness in, in which the church was, was birthed and grew. Um, and there are various uh, passages we can look to. I mean, for example, in Lydia, in Acts 16, Lydia um, is uh, listens to Paul, she's convinced by what he says, his sharing of the gospel. She's baptized with her household, with her household, and she immediately opens her home up. She opens her home up, that's her response, and, and it becomes an early church community. Um, Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth looked after Paul and his companions, and there was a tremendous growth there. And Gaius in Rome, wow, in Romans 16, this is Paul writing, Gaius, who is host to me and the whole church. Well, I know he must have had a few, Bob, but it's still good, isn't it? Um, he's there. He greets you as well. This man was willing. Okay, people have got resources. They're rich. It's not so much the money. It's how you use it, isn't it? So what about hospitality in our own church communities? Every Christian is called to practice hospitality. We talk about the gift of hospitality. Maybe some people seem to be used very much and very consistently in that area, but everyone's called to it. But that does not mean that we all have to do it the same way. Because there's lots of ways of doing this, isn't there? Hospitality can mean welcoming, sheltering, and feeding people. It can mean other things as well. But the point is, is we do it without thought of personal gain. We do it to show the love of Christ, not because of personal gain. And it's not only sharing what we have with whomever God sends, but it's actually sharing who we are in Christ. It's that self-giving, isn't it? It's who we are. That's what touches people. Hospitality says, I, we, care, and there is a place here for you. That's what hospitality says. It can mean food and drink, but it can also mean time, energy, a safe space. Uh, we might not all have a house where we can offer hospitality or enough money to provide meals for everyone who turns up. But 
There are other things we can do. We can offer a cup of coffee maybe and a listening ear, a greeting at the church door, a home visit, maybe a bit of cake or something to somebody who's housebound, inviting someone to Songs of the Sixties or one of the prayer groups, helping with the activities for the children, sharing the burden, taking it off parents for a while. You know, there's lots of things we, that we can do. At work, it might be making a new start to feel at home and showing them around. At school, it might be helping a classmate to settle in and get used to school life, especially if they're struggling a bit. It could be helping someone from another country to find their way around the challenges of life in a new land. It could be a Bible study. It could be a book club. It could be providing lessons or a food club. We know how that's... Um, exercising hospitality in wonderful ways. We've heard testimonies in the past, haven't we? It could be sporting activities. It could be providing a space in your tent so that someone else could go to MOG who maybe couldn't go otherwise. Something like that. It could be taking someone out for the day, especially someone who just couldn't manage to do that. There's lots of ways. We can be really, really creative in how we understand this extending of hospitality because there's many ways to be gracious and welcoming. But ultimately... Hospitality is not about taking on some onerous duty that makes us feel, oh gosh, it's a burden and I've got to do it because God says, blah. It's about having a heart that loves to serve and that wants to make a difference to people's lives, even in small ways, by making Christ present in their lives. So it's not so much about doing the right thing, but giving of oneself. And hospitality is personal because it's about people. We can have programs, we can have projects. Believe you me, I am not against programs and projects. I think they are incredibly useful things, and some things will not get done without them. But they're vehicles, they're frameworks to support us in exercising the personal, the personal encounter where one human being engages with another human being to show the love and care that Jesus wants to extend to them through the life that we have in him through his spirit. Healing, uh, hospitality has a healing dimension. A lot of bro- as we know, it's, it can be a very broken world out there, can't it? And it's a way of reaching out into a world where there's hurt, there's brokenness, there's despair. Uh, when people are hurting and they're fearful, hospitality can provide a safe space. When people are cared for and made to feel at home and experience a sense of belonging, it puts them in a place where they are more willing to open up to the power of God to save and to heal. And they experience growth. And we see this in Jesus' ministry when he reached out to the sick and the outcasts. And that's why he wanted to extend and go beyond this Old Testament framework. So just to, in conclusion, I would say hospitality is therefore missional. A word we hear a lot, but maybe we, you know, we, we do put hospitality in that box, but we also sometimes don't. Hospitality and mission intersect throughout the New Testament. Um, And as I referenced earlier, hospitality enabled early Christians to travel around, preach the gospel, grow their church communities, travel between them, network, share resources, and also to provide a model for living in charity. Do you remember in Acts it says, oh, look at how those Christians live. See how they love one another. And people were drawn to that like a magnet, because who isn't drawn to love ultimately? Even when people resist love, they're still drawn to it. So this is the very important thing, I think, to note. It's something we know, but I just want to reinforce it. Christian hospitality should proclaim Christ. It sounds obvious, 
But if we're not careful, we can be so careful, we can end up mirroring the hospitality the world offers. You see, kind and generous non-believers certainly can and do, do good things for people. And that's wonderful and lovely. But even though they can go some way, quite a long way to meeting people's needs, the one thing they can't do with them is share the life of Christ. They can't say, can I pray for you? They can't say, can I share the good news with you? They can't say, here's a word from the Lord from you. They can't say, here's a verse of scripture to comfort you, to guide you, to bless you, to bring you peace. They can't say, I know you're going through a hard time, something like that happened to me. I just want to share what Jesus has done for me. They can't give testimony. They can't do those things. Not blaming them, it's just where they're at. You can't expect people to share something they haven't got, but we have got it. So it's our responsibility to share that life. And I was thinking about that in a couple of the testimonies we had. Um, Helen was saying, you know, we follow the nudges of the Holy Spirit, don't we? And that Debbie Evans did for Helen. When Helen was at her lowest point, um, Debbie Evans heard that nudge, didn't she? And came and visited and showed hospitality to um, Helen. And also Dee going through her hard time interweaved amongst all the prayer and the intercession of the prophecy. There was also that sense of there are people who are visiting with me and giving me comfort and speaking something of the life of God to me. Over cups of tea, buns or whatever. All part of the mix, isn't it? I remember a while back, quite a long while ago, I was talking to a Christian missionary who was missionary. He was in a part of the developing world where there was a lot of disadvantage. It wasn't persecution, but there was a lot of disadvantage. So he was with this group of missionaries and they went in and they decided to plant a little church group and try and meet the needs of the people. Educational needs, health needs, basic living needs, you know, food, drink, etc. Um, and they did a terrific job in that. They really did a terrific job and a lot of people were attracted and for a while things grew. It wasn't long after, actually, probably they'd been there a year, maybe a couple of years, whatever, another group of missionaries came planted a little church not far off. They did very similar things. They also attracted numbers of people because, you know, Jesus did follow people, uh, people did follow Jesus for bread as well as everything else, you know. That's the reality. Um, and then what happened was, was some of the people over here started going over here. And then more people from here started going over here. What happened is, was this really grew and this kind of didn't it shrank. And one of the, one, at one point, one of the pastors from this church met with someone whom he thought, you know, would have stayed here and didn't and had gone over here. He says, so-and-so, we did all this for you and your community. Why, why have you gone away to this other group? And they, he said, we're so grateful for you because you, you fed us and you gave us clothing and you you looked after us and you, you educated our kids and you helped set up a health mission. And uh, they, they did that too, but there was one big difference. He said, what was that? He said, they told us about Jesus. You never did. You were so concerned about, you know, doing the right thing socially and, and, and like not, not frightening the horses, as they say, that you kind of underplayed it all the time. And we, we didn't really know, but over here, they do all that, but they also tell us about Jesus. <coughs> And now we, feel we, now we feel we know who Jesus is for ourselves. I've never forgotten that story, even though I think I heard it about 30 years ago. 
because he made such an impact on me. Let's not ever hide Jesus under a bushel. Let's not ever hide him under a table. You know, let's put him out there. We don't have to bash people over the head, but we do have to let people understand why we're doing what we're doing. Because if we, sh- if we don't give them the life of Christ when we're exercising these gifts, this is true of any spiritual gift, certainly true of hospitality, we're shortchanging them. So Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The rest of that is, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to finish on. Because you can say a lot about the glory of God, but the one thing I do want to say about the glory of God, it's not... The only thing I would say, but it's the thing I want to say today, is that the glory of God is who he is and his presence made manifest in the public earthly realm. They know who he is in the heavenlies, but he makes himself manifest. So, you know, you get the pillar of fire and the cloud of glory in the Old Testament, etc., etc. But the fullest and greatest revelation of the glory of God is in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why we have to share that revelation. So if we do all things for the glory of God, then using our gifts should show forth who God is and who Jesus is. And that's why we can think again of that Leviticus quote about um, the stranger sojourning in the land and not doing him any wrong because you too were strangers in the land. I am the Lord your God. Because, you see, this is a reflection of how Jesus brought all us back because we were strangers and we were aliens and we were estranged from God our Father. And we had to be brought back into relationship with him through the death of Jesus on the cross. So when Jesus died for sinners, he made us members of God's household. That's the ultimate form of hospitality when you think about it. And when we place our trust in Jesus, we're no longer strangers. We have a home in Christ. And it's out of that place in the household as children of our Father that we seek to expend that love of Christ given to us in the Spirit to others because we want to bring them into the household of God too. So the heart of God is love because showing who God is means showing his love because God is love. The love which has been poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit. And so again, everything that we do to proclaim the glory of God through Jesus Christ is about demonstrating his love. And when we see this love demonstrated, we should expect salvific, redemptive, healing effects. And this is where it differs from doing good and nice things for people. Because Christian hospitality, as with any spiritual gift, should bring forth fruits that sees people saved, that sees broken lives healed, and that brings forth testimonies of God's kindness and greatness. And we should not settle for anything less. So that's where I'm going to finish. But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to ask John to play this video. by Matt. It's it's a song that Matt Mayer has written recently called Bigger Table. And, you know, if you want to join in singing with it where you are, or if you just want to quietly listen to it, maybe it will help us reflect on that whole area of hospitality and what it means.